0: Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Robin Nagel talks about the Newtown Wastewater Treatment Plant in Greenpoint. Nagel, who teaches at NYU, is the anthropologist in residence at the New York City Department of Sanitation and the author of Picking Up, a book that asks readers to think about both the many organizational considerations and the general relationship between trash and modern urban life. Here, she used the Newtown Plant, one of the largest wastewater treatment facilities in the world, to discuss New York's long, tortured history with clean water production and the public health crises which ravaged the city before it resolved the problem. What do Aaron Burr, Collect Pond, Five Points, and J.P. Morgan Chase all have in common? Listen to find out. For more podcasts like this and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening.
1: The Newtown Creek Wastewater Treatment Plant is the largest of 14 such facilities serving New York City, and is one of the largest in the world. First opened in 1967, but expanded considerably since then, it now draws from a drainage area of approximately 15,000 acres, or roughly 25 square miles, and serves more than a million people in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan about 310 million gallons or 18 percent of the city's total move through the facility on a dry day But when it rains or after a heavy snow the volume can increase to as much as 700 million gallons that's the equivalent of nearly 1200 olympic size swimming pools the newtown creek plant is notable for its size and also for its architecture organic material found in sewage called sludge is transformed into fertilizer and biogas in the facility's eight massive digesters. Designed like eggs standing on end, the digesters serve a necessary water treatment function while also providing a striking accent to the Brooklyn skyline, particularly at night. French architect and lighting designer Hervé Descotes draped the structures with what he calls a diaphanous veil of blue lights to set apart the entire facility and to give it visual unity. He defined various functional areas with white lights, while yellow lights show aerial walkways. The result, both startling and beautiful, exemplifies recent trends in urban planning that unite functional necessity with innovative, even playful design. The Newtown Creek plant stands as one of the world's most technologically advanced and architecturally compelling public works facilities. It can also be understood as a symbol of the increasingly sophisticated relationship between urban planning, city infrastructure, and public health. While city neighborhoods may not welcome a sewage treatment plant in their backyard, the history of water infrastructure in New York City suggests reasons to be glad such facilities exist. The city's past reveals a water story rich with missed opportunities, misunderstanding, and straight out corruption. For example, In 1798, an epidemic of yellow fever ravaged the city, killing nearly 2,100 of its approximately 30,000 residents. Not for the first time, New York found itself crippled by an epidemic that it could not predict, prevent, or control. Within less than three decades of the nation's start, one of her premier ports risked losing its economic stability, potential cultural status, and even its chance at a viable future all for the want of a ready supply of clean water. An answer came from an unexpected source. Aaron Burr, then a state legislator and leader of the Democratic Republican Party, already had a reputation as an ambitious politician. Though orphaned by the age of two, he was heir to wealth and influence. His maternal grandfather was American philosopher-theologian, Jonathan Edwards, and his father had been president of a college that came to be called Princeton. In New York, he was known as a sometime ally, sometime rival of Federalist Party leader Alexander Hamilton, the country's first Secretary of the Treasury and founder of the Bank of New York. Burr had a scheme to win national office. He wanted the highest in the land, but he was short of cash. Since Hamilton had already founded the city's bank, Burr looked for another source of revenue. In 1799, Burr offered to supply the city with the one resource it needed more desperately than all others. He proposed forming a company that would pipe water from the Bronx in tar-sealed pine pipes, fill a grand reservoir, then distribute this miraculous substance throughout a network of more tar-sealed pipes. Burr sponsored a bill in the state legislature to charter the Manhattan Water Company, a public entity of his own design. Some of Burr's associates posing as his opponents claimed that such a venture would surely fail if it relied on public funds. Burr graciously agreed and suggested that the Manhattan Water Company could be a private firm. The legislation was rewritten. Some in Albany who knew Burr well were wary of his motives, but after the bill was edited, it seemed straightforward. Once he had appeased his detractors, however, and they were no longer reading the fine print, Burr slipped in the loopholes that he had intended from the start. The private Manhattan Water Company was given the right to take water from whatever source it wanted, using whatever means it felt necessary. It was not obligated to repair any damage caused by digging pipelines, drilling wells, or maintaining the system. It could set what rates it chose, and it was not required to provide free water to the city, for firefighting, for washing streets, or for any other reason. Its charter was guaranteed in perpetuity, a singular provision in American corporate life at the time. It did not have to provide water to anyone for ten years, and even then, it had to supply only to, as the charter said, all such citizens as shall agree to take it on the terms to be demanded. With these stipulations, the Manhattan Water Company signaled its complete disregard for the stench-filled town and its disease-riddled citizenry. But such remarkable chicanery was merely prelude to the charter's central and most unscrupulous clause. It shall be legal, said a brief statement near the end of the charter, for the company to employ all such surplus capital, as may belong or accrue to the said company, in the purchase of public or other stock, or in any moneyed transactions or operations, for the sole benefit of said company. With that single sentence, Burr's business venture was revealed for its true intention as a guarantee of his fortune and, he hoped, the foundation of his political future. It also guaranteed New York's abiding want. The city was slow to see the company's deceit. At first, the Common Council seemed almost tipsy at the prospect of finally getting sweet, healthy water piped into homes filling fire hoses and coursing down streets that would at long last be shiny clean. Burr's minions encouraged this initial enthusiasm. They promised that water would start flowing in a miraculously short time, but the company revealed its duplicity from the start. Everyone in New York, from city fathers, the best engineers of the day and the richest merchants to the simplest hot corn girls and humblest workers, knew that no well spring, or a pump within Manhattan brought up fresh water. The closest, most logical supply was in the Bronx and in Westchester. The challenge was to build the necessary infrastructure to bring it south. The knowledge and technology existed. A project of such magnitude merely required enough funding and commitment to make it happen. Certainly it would be expensive, but no one had ever pretended otherwise, and a dehydrated city understood it to be the first order of business for the Manhattan Water Company. Company executives had other ideas. It was much easier and cheaper, they reasoned, to find water closer to home, such as in the Collect Pond. Ah, the Collect Pond, sustenance for the indigenous Lenape across countless generations, with deep middens of oyster and clamshells suggesting innumerable feasts across how many centuries. Sustenance for European settlers for decades, with early colonists enjoying not just the sweet taste but also the sweet caesores of winter ice skating and the balmy breezes of summer boating. The springs that fed the pond and the marshes that surrounded it had made a wetland paradise that natives had exploited but never destroyed. The newcomers had gradually abused and degraded it. Since before the Revolutionary War, streets had been draining into it, generations of garbage and effluent and night soil had been flung into it, Decades of tannery water and slaughterhouse discharges had turned its strange colors. The accumulated bodies of countless dead animals and the occasional human being had given it a signature perfume. The water of the collect pond had been undrinkable for a long time. Burr decided to tap it. New Yorkers were aghast. This was the very liquid so tainted by now that perhaps it could no longer be called water that had provoked the outcry that had inspired the legislation that had led to the creation of the Manhattan Water Company in the first place. One observer noted that the company would be responsible for the deaths of thousands if it relied on collect water. Burr, undaunted, marshalled his own so-called experts to declare the water safe. One who had formerly called it large, stagnating, filthy water a few years earlier, changed his mind, and asserted that the pond only needed a cleaning to be good as new. It happened that since his initial condemnation, this so-called expert was now Burr's son-in-law and superintendent of the company. The beleaguered Collect Pond was not to be a source for long. The city decided that it was too fetid, too far gone, to continue to exist. Between 1804 and 1815, Nearby hills were leveled, and the resulting piles of earth were used to transform the loathsome water into usable land. It was hardly choice real estate. Though the pond was filled, springs deep below continued to flow, so the built land was soggy and often subsided. No one wanted to live there, and the rickety fire hazards thrown up as housing were soon occupied by the city's most destitute residents. The neighborhood became the center of an area known as Five Points, New York's most notorious slum and dirtiest quarter for the remainder of the 19th century. The scant water that eventually flowed through the approximately 25 miles of pipe laid by the Manhattan Water Company, which served or claimed to serve 2,000 customers, was never of adequate quality nor quantity. The water did nothing for citizens' health, the state of the streets, or the fire department's water supply, It did not help fight fires nor waves of disease that still racked the town. Yellow Fever visited again in 1819 and in 1822. Though the Manhattan Water Company never fulfilled its original mandate, indeed it never intended to, it could boast several remarkable accomplishments. It snookered New Yorkers into believing that it would answer the city's water needs. Perhaps citizens were slow to admit that the company was corrupt because their own want was so great and their hope so strong. Faith in Burr's enterprise lingered even in the face of obviously cynical decisions, like drawing from the Collect Pond instead of from the Bronx River, and building a reservoir far smaller than the promised million-gallon capacity. The Common Council, eventually fed up with the lies and the purposeful ineptitude of the Manhattan Water Company tried to create a public water utility to counter it, but wily waterworks executives managed to orchestrate defeats of the measure every time it came up. The company proved most successful at crippling its own city. By the time the Common Council finally organized itself to procure a real and abundant source of fresh water, New York was thirstier, dirtier, smellier, sicker, and at greater risk of fire than it had been in 1799. Across those same years, the company had proved itself capable of making enormous profit. Today, as J.P. Morgan Chase, it is one of the world's oldest and most successful banks. By 1830, the state of the streets made this would-be financial capital the laughing stock of the civilized world. The long-standing corruption of the Manhattan Water Company was an established fact, and yellow fever, along with dysentery, measles, pneumonia, scarlet fever, smallpox, tuberculosis, typhus, and whooping cough were perpetual threats, but the city's leaders found none of this motive enough to solve the city's water crisis. That catalyst finally arrived in the form of two tragedies. On June 15th, 1832, a steamboat from Albany brought news that Asiatic cholera, a sickness that had recently been terrifying Europe, had made its North American landfall in Montreal. New York's alarmed Common Council imposed strict quarantines on all incoming ships and forbade land travelers from within a mile and a half of city's borders, while local clergy called for emergency sessions of prayer and fasting. These gestures were useless. A scant 10 days after it was reported in Canada, cholera was officially diagnosed in New York. By early July, the disease was claiming more than 100 lives a day. Cholera was panic-inducing, not just because it was lethal, but because it was violently fast. The cholera toxin attacks the small intestine to cause vomiting and an exhausting diarrhea of flecked white liquid called rice water. As the body is drained of fluid, muscles cramp and then spasm violently. The heart races. The eyes grow glassy. The skin shrivels and darkens. Once critically hydrated, but before death claims him, the victim often goes into shock. Horrified New Yorkers watched their kin and friends die within hours of the first symptoms. Even those killed more slowly only lasted a day or so. The heaviest death toll was in the Five Points neighborhood. Like in centuries past, the impoverished dead were blamed for the epidemic. Wealthier citizens judged their habits, their language, their clothing, their faith, their labors, their music as morally deficient and thus worthy of divine retribution, which, to some, was no doubt the true provenance of this epidemic. The disease, declared one cleric, was evidence that God wanted to drain off the filth and scum which contaminate and defile human society. But the sickness moved too fast to respect the illusory safety of class distinction, and even those who pointed such cruel fingers of blame didn't wait around to see if they were safe. The roads in all direction, wrote the New York Evening Post, were lined with well-filled stagecoaches, livery coaches, private vehicles, and equestrians, all panic-struck, fleeing the city, as we may suppose the inhabitants of Pompeii fled when the red lava showered down upon their houses. Those without the means to flee or with nowhere to go succumbed faster than the survivors could keep up. The dead lay in the streets or rotted unburied in potter's fields. Private hospitals refused the sick, factories were shuttered, saloons were closed, churches were empty, theaters were dark. The most notable feature of the city in the summer of 1832 was its unnatural silence. By the time the epidemic had spent itself, it had felled more than 3,500 New Yorkers. In today's city of 8 million, the toll would be equivalent to 100,000 deaths. No one can say that clean water would have completely prevented cholera from rampaging through New York, but it spreads when an unsuspecting soul consumes water that has been contaminated with cholera-laced feces, or food that has been in contact with such water. In the 1830s, as had been the custom for hundreds of years, most of the city's residents emptied their bowels into chamber pots that were then emptied into the streets, or they used privies that were not much more than holes in the ground. And then drank water from wells that were sunk into the ground near those same privies. There were also thousands of hogs, dogs, horses, and cattle living in, moving through, and defecating all over the streets. The emotional and economic toll of the epidemic was still being measured when three years later the city was consumed by a new horror. The night of December 16th, 1835, was already bone chillingly cold by the mercury's measure, and strong winds were pushing the wind chill far below zero. At about nine o'clock, a watchman noticed smoke from a five-story warehouse on Exchange Street, now called Beaver Street. In the cramped quarters of the city's financial district, fire found ready fuel. Within minutes, dozens of structures were ablaze. Firemen responded immediately, but the entire force was still exhausted from fighting a fire only the night before. Worse, that inferno had left fire cisterns empty. The men cut through the East River's ice, but the water they drew froze immediately. They stomped on their hoses and poured brandy on their pumps and in their boots, but the water that managed to squirt through was blown back in their faces, and the fire ballooned out of control. Help came from Brooklyn, then from New Jersey, and even from Philadelphia, where the conflagration was an ominous glow on the horizon. But the fire wasn't checked until Marines brought gunpowder from the Brooklyn Navy Yard to blow up buildings in the path of the flames. Even then, it burned for two days and wasn't completely extinguished for more than two weeks. When the damage was tallied, estimates ranged from $18 million to $26 million. In today's dollars, more than half a billion. Gone were 50 acres of the city's architecture, some of it dating from the Dutch. As many as 700 buildings had been lost on 17 blocks. And all but three of the city's 26 fire insurance companies went bankrupt. Laid low by a new and terrifying epidemic, then rocked by a fire that is still reckoned as one of the most devastating in American urban history, New York was finally moved to act. A master plan to bring water to the city from Westchester's Croton River, proposed but ignored in 1830, was approved in a referendum on April 14, 1835. A fitful start became a concerted effort after the fire. A dam was built across the Croton, A masonry aqueduct was laid straight and at an appropriate tilt over more than 40 miles. An architecturally magnificent, if much debated, granite bridge was stretched across the Harlem River to carry pipes the last miles into the city. A 31-acre, 180-million-gallon receiving reservoir was dug out. It is now Central Park's Great Lawn and a 24-million-gallon-distributing reservoir of Egyptian grandeur was planted at 5th Avenue and 42nd Street. The opening ceremonies in 1842, marked by parades, music, and fireworks, drew tens of thousands of celebrants. Water flowed into the distributing reservoir and from there south to fountains at Union Square and at City Hall Park, where a hundred-gun salute sounded as the fountain was turned on and water shot 50 feet into the air. It's difficult to imagine what parched New Yorkers must have felt as they heard at long last untold millions of gallons splashing and roaring into the grand structure on Fifth Avenue, and then watching its ornamental gushing in the fountains further downtown. George Templeton Strong, a New York society nabob and diarist whose writings are a source of intimate detail about the 19th century city, was skeptical. The Croton Water, he wrote, is all full of tadpoles and animalculae, and which moreover flows through an aqueduct which I hear was used as a necessary by all the Hibernian vagabonds who worked upon it. I shall drink no Croton water for some time to come. A friend has drunk some of it and is in dreadful apprehension of breeding bullfrogs inwardly. Like the rest of the city, however, Mr. Strong soon changed his mind. I've led a rather amphibious life for the last week, he wrote not long after the water started flowing, paddling in the bathtub every night and constantly making new discoveries in the art and mystery of ablution. Were Mr. Strong brought from his time to ours, one wonders how he might react to New Yorker's contemporary water infrastructure. Surely he would be dazzled by the grandeur of the Newtown Creek facility, and he would probably be amazed at the ease by which today's Gothamites can access clean water. But I'd like to think he'd be most impressed by the many deadly threats to public health and well-being that are no longer uppermost on a list of daily concerns, thanks to the Newtown Creek Wastewater Treatment Plant and its 13 cousin facilities.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcast at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History.